oh my God, I think this is the best song we've ever written. But we didn't know it as we were writing it because it was just such emotional, heavy lifting. Welcome back to Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. Before we get started, please note that this show touches upon addiction, eating disorders, sexual assault, and mental health. We realize this content is not for everyone and encourage you to take care of yourself first. Hailing from Portland, Maine, and now residing in Nashville, our next guest is taking country music by storm. Her debut album, Open Book, was listed at number seven in the New York Times Best Albums of 2019. She's a singer-songwriter who has rightfully earned a recognition as CMT Next Women of Country, The New Nashville by Teen Vogue, and a top 10 country artist to watch in 2018 by the Huffington Post. She made her Grand Ole Opry debut in 2018 and has played the stage 17 times so far. Her work with the all-female collective Song Suffragettes was featured on PBS NewsHour, NPR's Morning Edition, and On Point, as well as Elle Magazine. Like that doesn't sound busy enough, she hosts an iHeartMedia podcast called Too Much to Say with Kaylee Shore. She recently released her expanded album, Open Book, Unabridged, and is spending the pandemic trying to keep a secret from her 45,000 Instagram followers. I think it has something to do with a girl named Amy. For a woman who boldly says what others don't, she's the voice that country music audiences are ready to hear. Kaylee Shore, welcome to the show. Hey, Thea, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Is it cold in Nashville right now? It is really cold. Like right before I started taping, I cranked the heat up because I live in like a kind of old house, so it gets pretty drafty. And yeah, can confirm it's freezing. It's freezing. Well, you know what? It's unusually cold and rainy here in Austin as well. So we're just going to cozy up and have a warm, inviting conversation. But you know what? You're from Maine. Yes, I am. So I'm used to it. Well, I warmed up for our conversation today by binging a few episodes of Maine Cabin Masters on the DIY Network last night. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Have you watched it? I've seen a little bit of clips about it. I mean, anytime any sort of media comes out about Maine, Mainers lose their minds because I think that we feel forgotten about very often. (laughs) It's kind of, well, because the thing about Maine is like, it's not that people don't, they don't not remember it because they don't like it. It's that it's not on the way to anywhere. So I describe that to somebody because it's always like, oh, that's the one state I've never been to. And I'm like, well, yeah, because it's literally not on the way to anywhere. It's as far Northeast as you can get. And um, on the other you know, the other side of the ocean, you have the UK. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, I actually, some of my fondest memories are spending some summers in Ogunquit. Oh, it's beautiful up there. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about it, but first we're going to go through the shakedown. Are you ready to shake it down? I am. Yes. Okay. So our first question is who was your first concert? I saw, um, the the chicks at Madison Square Garden with Michelle Branch opening when I was nine. <gasps> it was pretty good. <laughs> okay. This was the formerly the Dixie Chicks. Yes, 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 yes. Oh my gosh. When I was listening to your music, I honestly thought, I wonder if the Dixie Chicks or the Chicks have any kind of inspiration for her songwriting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what was the first album you bought with your own money? When I was 10, I got Pearl Jam's rearview mirror, their greatest hits record. 
Oh my gosh. Rearview Mirror yeah. is one of my favorite recordings. It's Yeah, it's amazing. It is so good. It, actually, that surprises me. I thought it might be something country. Well, that's kind of the thing is I got into country because my older sisters loved it. So I got all their hand-me-downs and my dad would always sing Last Kiss by Pearl Jam. And this was like a really mm-hmm. big moment for, I think, my parents realizing how much I love music, but I was like six and I'm sitting in the backseat of the car and he's just kind of singing it mostly to himself. And he turns around at one point and he notices that I'm sobbing and he's like, are you okay? And I was just like, it's just so sad. And he's like, you're six years old. Like, what are you doing? And I would just frequently cry about songs. And so then from there, I got really, really into Pearl Jam because that song just like hit me so hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I know. It's a tearjerker. And it honestly could be a country (laughs) song. Like, I'd love to record that song one day. Well, let me know if you do. I would love to hear it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Right now, as far as current artists, I love the new Butch Walker album. It's called American Love Story, and it is basically a rock opera about the political division in the United States right now, which is pretty amazing. That's deep. It is. Yeah. So I really, really love that record. And then I've been listening to, there's so much good stuff on the Salt playlist on Spotify. It's one of their editorial ones, but there's some great artists on there like Ash Nico and Upsall, this girl band called the Tramp Stamps. It's just the perfect place for like moody girl pop. I also really like this artist named Steph, S-T-E-F, and she is a, a pop artist in Nashville and she's on that playlist as well. Okay, so everybody, we now have a playlist to listen to and a, a whole bunch opera. of artists, <laughs> a rock opera, and a bunch of artists to look up. So everyone, write your lists out right now. <laughs> All right, so this is a big question. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? It's, a, it's so hard to pick that question, but I think my music falls almost directly at the the. If there's a a Venn diagram of Alanis Morissette and Taylor Swift, I'm somewhere in the middle. So I think the two of them, you know, my entire life have just been not only consuming their music and, and, you know, pouring over their lyrics, but also reading any interview and watching any interview. And as I recorded my album, Open Book, I would watch a lot of interviews that Alanis did during the Jagged Little Pill era. And I found them to be so just inspiring. And I think that the two of them just not even like even more so than musically, just like who they are as people have been a really big inspiration. If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, that's such a great question. I, what a difficult one though, you know, if for dead, I would like to sit down with Zelda Fitzgerald and find out exactly how much of those F. Scott Fitzgerald novels she was responsible for. <laughs> and um, then I think uh, living, I mean, who wouldn't want to have um, have dinner with the, the vice president of the United States, you know? So probably <gasps> Vice President Harris. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, talk about first. Oh, my gosh. I mean, just to have that. There's just so many questions I'd like to ask her, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've gotten very lucky and been able to actually have some conversations with my musical idols and just know exactly what that feels like to just be able to be like, what did you mean when you said this this one time? Like, was it was there more to it? Like, So getting to do that with those two women would be incredible. Wrapping up the shakedown with the last question, what is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? Oh, that's beautiful. I think I would like to 
start a charity for music and schools and specifically like be able to donate a lot to my high school because we had like, you know, it, it wasn't, it was just a public school, but they put such an emphasis on the arts and, you know, there wasn't a massive budget for it, but you could just tell that the teachers had such a passion and went so above and beyond. And they, um, you know, I was able to take a guitar class at school when I didn't have access to instruments myself. And I was able to take a drama and speech course and learn about public speaking and all these things that went on to be really, really important to me as an artist. And if I hadn't had those kind of opportunities in school, I'm not sure that it would have been as, um, I don't want to say easy, but as obvious to me that I needed to do music for a living. So probably something that could just help other kids, you know, realize that it's a real career path and, you know, realize their passion for it. Right. And our teachers right now are struggling so much with all of the remote learning and the hybrid learning and the possible exposure to COVID and everything. They are my heroes. Yeah. Everybody's struggling and, and it's obviously like a scale, like, you know, I lost my tours, but some people have completely lost their livelihoods and jobs and all that. And mine's just on pause. But I mean, I don't know if any like massive demographic is hurt more than children during Mm -hmm. this, just like I have a little brother and sister and they're both in elementary school and trying to have a six-year-old figure out Zoom is just not, it just does not work. Mm -hmm. And teachers are so patient with it. They are. And even if they're in class trying to keep a five or six-year-old distanced from another five or Mm -hmm. (laughs) six-year-old. 100%. Oh, it's, it's just uh, my props to all of our educators out there. And we send everybody our best during these trying times that we hope will turn around soon. I think that we handled the shakedown with grace and finesse. (laughs) And I'm super excited about that. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Kaylee Shore and we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after this message. You can help Horizon Music Foundation uplift female trailblazers and rising stars in music. Go to backstagechats.com and click the donate button. For as little as $10 per month, your recurring monthly gift provides the education, experience, and role modeling our next generation of female music makers need to be successful in the music industry. Visit backstagechats.com and click donate. Join our tribe of dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars. And we're back. We are here with Kaylee Shore. And we've already talked a little bit about growing up in Maine. And I wanted to ask, what was a typical day in the life of the Shore family? Oh, gosh. I mean, there was no... There was not a lot of consistency in my childhood because there were so many people. So I was the youngest of seven, but they were all half-siblings. So even my holidays would, they'd be back and forth. And sometimes I would even go do Thanksgiving with my sister's dad's family, who's my mom's ex-husband. And it was just all over the place. I was homeschooled. Then I went to private school. Then I went to public school. I mean, I cannot even think about like, I don't think there was one day that looked like another one. (laughs) I think just being wildly all over the place, living in two different houses back and forth. I think that the only thing that was really, truly consistent for me was music. And that's been, it's always been a place of comfort for me from the time I was six years old on. Did the music really come in while you were still homeschooling or did that happen after you started meeting with teachers and being in a classroom? 
music was just always something I really loved. And it started, I would go to this co-op thing. So I would do art class and history class with other kids once or twice a week. And I remember being really vividly being six years old and writing my first song during history class. And I think my teacher saw me and, and I, you know, was like, Hey, can you focus? And then from then on, that was just me in every single class I ever took. But yeah. <laughs> wait, no, wait, it was in history class. Were you writing a song about a historical figure or event? No, I was writing a song about a sleepover where we snuck into the kitchen and stole soda. And um, I, I found this like years later in the notebook. And I just, I remembered it so vividly. It was on this like purple star paper in a little journal. And um, yeah, and it's just so funny because like I hadn't had soda yet. My parents were really strict about that stuff. So like to me, that was like the edgiest song I could have possibly written. <laughs> okay. And do you remember any of it? Could you hum it or sing it? I couldn't sing it because I think it was more like a lyric thing. But one of the most hilarious things is... I have this notebook of songs I wrote between nine and 11, probably. And they are so cringy. And for whatever reason, because I didn't have a way to record them. This was before iPhones. There was really no way for me to get the melodies down. So I just have to sing it until I remembered it. And I can look at this book and like all the melodies came back to me. And I was like, oh God, (laughs) like, I love it because we all start somewhere. And you're eight or nine years old, and there's only so much that you have to draw from at that point. Yeah. Truthfully, like I had a very tumultuous childhood, and the songs that I was writing really reflected that. They were, there's so much to read between the lines in them because it's very clearly child trying to process trauma by writing songs about it. But like, you can tell that I didn't really understand what I was writing about, but I needed to write about it in order to like help me get there. So they were like pretty heavy songs. It was definitely like the sleepover one was probably the most lighthearted of all of them. But yeah. Fast forward into talking about songwriting and personal transition between your EP Slingshot and your 2019 album Open Book. What would you say are the defining differences between those? Because you were, how old were you when you started writing the songs for Slingshot? Released Fight Like a Girl when I was 21. And some of the songs on Slingshot, I probably wrote between between 20 and 21. Okay. And then we'll look at Open Book. Were there life events or anything that happened in between there that really distinguished your songwriting from the EP to the album? Um, yes, for sure. <laughs> I I also released another EP in between called Awake, which was when I first really started to incorporate more rock influences and be more comfortable leaning away from the commercial country stuff. And that was such an important stepping stone. But, you know, Slingshot was like my first real introduction and to the, the marketplace and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it was, there was so much. I mean, on Awake, I like started to kind of begin to touch on more serious topics. I wrote about my parents not being together and growing up like that on this song called Backseat, but it was nothing compared to Open Book. And basically in 2018, everything I knew just changed overnight. I had moved to Nashville with a dog and a guy that I met in my hometown. We worked at a pizza restaurant together and uh, we were together for about seven or eight months before I moved to Nashville and he ended up coming with me and we were together for six years, but I was with him from 
18 on. We started dating in high school. So I woke up at about to turn 24 years old and I had no idea. Like I hadn't lived on my own. I went right from living with my parents to living with him. I hadn't ever had to like figure out how to date people. You know, I went from high school to that, to a very serious committed relationship that I thought was going to end in marriage. So I was like, remember going on my first date after that. And it was like from Tinder. And I like felt like I was in a parallel universe because I'd never done online dating. And like everybody uses apps now from people in their forties to kids in college. And it was just the most jarring thing. So I'm trying to navigate that. I'm going through the massive heartbreak. It ended really, really badly. Um, it wasn't like a mutual, well, we're out of love with each other, which truthfully was probably the underlying issue, but it ended with cheating and a domestic violence situation. And so I, I just was, it was just so much. And then right when I started to kind of feel like I was coming out of that and, and able to like, you know, walk into life and be calm and, and not, you know, get rid of the heartbreak and shake the depression and whatnot. My sister passed away from a drug overdose. And that was the moment that everything changed. And like the songs I wrote the week before we broke up, sound leagues different from the songs from the next week. Like as soon as that happened, my writing completely changed. The only song that made it onto open book that I wrote before the breakup was Big Houses. And which is just a song about my my mom. And it was just so much at once. And I think that the only like there was no way that wasn't going to be reflected in my writing. But as soon as my sister passed away in January of 2019, I wrote most of the album in February of 2019. So as soon as I was, I I spent a lot of time with family and, you know, took several weeks off work and and all of that. And, uh, as soon as I started writing again, it just started falling out and like, cause there was no way for me to gloss anything over. I wasn't feeling very positive. I'd been completely had to the, the veil was gone on my family issues. There was no way we couldn't confront them after something like that. So it was the biggest wake up call. And I think that's really reflected in my songwriting. And that was just, you know, that's why when I, I listened to Slingshot and Awake, it, it feels like a different person. And that's why I don't think I could really record any songs that I wrote before that, because it, it really was just, I did so much growing up at 24, like 10 years worth. It hits close to home for me because I've had friends who have died of drug overdoses, who live with alcoholism and so on and so forth. Will you please share a little bit more about the personal story behind that song in particular? Yeah, that song was so, like these songs weren't me writing feelings that I already had and was ready to articulate. These songs were me figuring out these emotions in real time as I wrote them. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Awake on my living room floor with my best friend, Candy Carpenter, who had come home with me uh, for my sister's funeral and seen my family up close and and dysfunction will, is at an all time high at a funeral. I'll tell you that much. And she just was so supportive and you know, but then she had context. So we're writing the song and she had seen it herself. And so she's like really helping me go to this place to write about it super safely. And I remember we, like, there was no way I was writing that song sober because it was just so hard to articulate those. Cause the second you put a name on something like that, it makes it so much more real. And that's why people 
allow things like addiction to become a taboo topic because if you don't say it out loud, you can pretend it's not there. But so the second I was saying these things in the song, like as we were writing it, it was just, you know, me really airing it all out, not even like to other people, but to myself. Mm -hmm. So I think I had an entire bottle of wine that night. And then Candy and I were so exhausted after writing it just because it was like real emotional work. And she slept over and we just were so tired. And we woke up the next morning and we listened to it and we were like, oh my God, I think this is the best song we've ever written. Yeah. But we didn't know it as we were writing it because it was just such emotional, heavy lifting. You know, but I've heard so many from so many people that that song has been important to them. And there's even a fan who has the lyrics tattooed on her. And I'm really proud of that song. I think it's probably the song I'm the most proud of. It's still the one of the hardest to sing. But Was that the first song that, speaking of giving a name to something, was that the first song that you had written pertaining to your eating disorder? Yeah, I think it was. It was the first one I'd ever released. I think there was definitely some songs that I'd touched on it, but I never released them because I wasn't super comfortable talking about it. I had really kind of just addressed it like briefly, like during National Eating Disorder Awareness Week and whatnot. I would, you know, post something and be like, hey, if you feel this way, I have to, but I never really got into the details of it. And that felt very freeing just to be able to say these things out loud because the second you, you know, the sa- in the same way that you have to face them the second you put a name to them the second you put those names out into the world you have to you know it's just it feels so freeing it feels like this weight's lifted because you're not keeping this you know supposedly dirty secret anymore right I found a post on your Instagram account and would like to share it with our audience you wrote I was 16 here this is about the graphic that goes with the post Having a rare moment of freedom in the middle of a five-year-long battle with anorexia, I was so young and so full of dreams, but at that same time, completely weighed down by the fear of not being enough. Looking back, I barely recognized who I was then. The first moment I found real clarity and started the healing process was after passing out after having gone five days without eating any food. I woke up in a fog and felt so lost. I couldn't believe that I was doing this to myself. And then moving forward in the post, you conclude, I've now been in recovery for longer than I had anorexia, and I'm so proud of the progress I made. Recovery is a long process, and I know I'll never be the same, but I am fine with that because along with my imperfections, God gave me my experiences as a gift too, so I can use them to better myself and to tell my stories and hopefully help others. First of all, very deep, very personal, very raw. And obviously other people are touched by this. And I'm curious, how do you feel that you ended up on a self-destructive path at such a young age? I have done so much therapy to figure out the answer to that question. It's also, I feel like important to know, and I think I've kind of touched on this as well, but I posted that in 2017 and after the breakup in 2018, I had a complete full-on relapse. I'd had moments in between recoveries, never, it's not a completely straightforward thing. You take little, it's not linear. You take little detours every once in a while, whether it's just thought or actions, but I'd never like relapsed the way that I did in 2018. And that was, you know, I had a very similar wake up call, but I, I actually did in a, I took an AP psych class in high school and I really was passionate about psychology and um, counseling and whatnot. And I did my thesis paper on 
eating disorders and the you know nature versus nurture question. And as with nearly anything, it's completely 50-50. So growing up in an environment where there was a lot of food guilt and food shaming, one of my parents had an actual eating disorder and the other one has presumably one, but more so just disordered eating. Mm-hmm. And so growing up and, and feeling like some foods were dirty and you couldn't touch them and there was a lot of like restriction and all of that. And then, you know, not having any control over the things around me, I felt like there were just so many people making decisions for me and, and I w- had no say in the matter and they were really bad decisions. Like mm-hmm. I was a child and I had to just buckle up and go along for the ride knowing that it was, you know, these adults are making terrible decisions. So I found something I could have control over and it just so happened to be eating. And, um, it started when I was like, 11. I think I was 11 and a half when I got diagnosed with it. Also, another big factor was there wasn't a lot of belief in traditional, there wasn't a lot of belief in modern medicine or psychotherapy in my family. There was a lot of emphasis on religion. So whenever something traumatic happened, you went and talked to a pastor about it. And, uh, these pastors were lovely people. I have nothing terrible to say about them, but they were not trained to treat a, you know, adolescent girl with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any Bible verse is going to fix that for you. So there was just, there was no real support. There was a lot of um, kind of put brushing it under the rug, a lot of minimizing it. And uh, it had to get pretty severe to even like, you know, go to that doctor for the first time and and get diagnosed. But it was like, I remember my, one of my parents went in with me and, you know, they were like, oh yeah, you have textbook anorexia, like official diagnosis, like, you know, whatever. And we left and, you know, my mom was like, we're never going back there again. And I was like, why? And she like something, because there was like some new agey quote on the, on a poster on the wall or something. And it was just like, she was like, it's just not Christian. And I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was super toxic. And, you know, something that I've really had to learn to forgive her for without ever getting an apology. Remember to come back for part two of Kaylee Shore's chat. Backstage Chats with Women in Music is a production of Horizon Music Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit that envisions a music industry where any woman can make a living based on merit, no matter her age, appearance, familial status, or orientation. Thanks to our guest, Kaylee Shore, audio engineer, John Neff, intern, Claudia Dortman, theme song provider, Pond5.com, and a band of donors and volunteers who make all of our episodes possible. Information on how to donate, volunteer, or appear on the podcast is at backstagechats.com. Thank you for joining our band of dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars.